Uh, my name is Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and a special welcome to all of you uh, who may be new. Uh, time changes are cool, aren't they? They're great until you have young children. Uh, we were just at the point with our three young kids where they were almost making it between 7.30 and 8 every morning, and now it's like we have to start all over uh, with them again, and so that's always fun. But uh, I'm excited uh, for today, and I'm excited for you to he- have the opportunity uh, to hear from our, our guest today, uh, a man by the name of Bob Russell. Uh, when Bob was 22, uh, he became the pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, today, that small congregation that started out as, uh, with 120 members has grown to almost 20,000 people uh, to become one of the largest churches in America. Now, I only tell you that because I know that Bob would not tell you that, and uh, in no way would he certainly ask for credit. Uh, I trust that he would give you a long list of other people, names of men and women who have sacrificed uh, to help that church uh, get to where it is today. Bob and his wife, Judy, have been married for uh, 44 years, and she'll be with us here this morning, too. Uh, They have two married sons that live in Louisville and seven grandchildren uh, that they enjoy. Bob has written over dozens of books, uh, including this one that sits on my shelf, a book entitled When God Builds a Church. Uh, He writes for a a weekly magazine uh, through Standard Publishing. In his leisure time, he enjoys playing golf, and he's a big fan of University of Louisville football and basketball. Uh, Bob retired from his position at Southeast Christian Church in 2006, but retirement has everything to do with how you define it. Uh, Today, Bob speaks almost weekly all across the country at churches and conferences. He devotes many uh, weeks a year to mentoring pastors at a retreat center in southern Indiana, an event that I had the privilege of being part of this past spring. Uh, He's a faculty member of a group called the London Institute, and uh, this group is dedicated to helping people uh, enter into full-time ministry, especially later on in life. I know that I've talked about it before. I know that our staff gets sick of of hearing about my experience at Southeast, uh, where I served just prior to coming uh, to Genesis for three years. And my first year was Bob Russell's last year. Now, I did not run him out of ministry or run him out of that place, uh, but it was such a pleasure for me to at least have one year to serve under his leadership there at Southeast. I I would describe him as a man of great humility, uh, a man of outstanding character, and a man with incredible passion for the Word of God and for the hope that the church brings to the world. Uh, We had breakfast together one morning uh, in his final year at Southeast, and and I don't know if he remembers this breakfast or not. We were sitting at Perkins, and and I wanted to try and be the real studious, uh, forward-thinking staff person. Some people call it brown-nosing. And I I was all set with these questions. And the one question that I asked him was, Bob, what would you say to me as a a preacher and just in my future ministry, wherever it is that God uh, calls me to go? And I'll always remember his words, and I know that I've shared them with you before. He said, preach the word of God, because when you preach the word of God, stuff happens. And uh, so I've tried to hold true uh, to those words, but uh, we're excited to have Bob Russell here today, and I'm excited for you to be able to hear him. I'm going to ask him to come forward. Would you give him a big welcome as he comes at this time? I've enjoyed being here today, and uh, I have to admit Seeing all the worship team on staff and looking out over this audience, I feel old. Uh, what a great bunch of young people. But I, I heard a story the other day that gave me some encouragement and hope. I, did you hear about the 84-year-old widower 
who got engaged to an 82-year-old widow. And he went into the drugstore and he asked the pharmacist, do you have ACE bandages here? He said, yes, we do. He said, do you have arthritis medicine? Yes, we do. Do you have heart medicine? Yes, we do. He said, do you have Depends here? Yes, we do. He said, I guess you're wondering why I'm asking all these questions. The pharmacist said, well, I was wondering about it. He said, well, I'm engaged to get married and my fiance and I were thinking about registering here for our gifts. <laughs> so it gave me some hope, you know. I want you to know I am a big fan of your preacher, and it was great to have him on our staff at uh, Southeast Christian Church, and uh, you know, he, he not only is an excellent preacher, he is a wonderful human being, and that's more important. I saw him in situations where he could have been negative and he remained positive, and uh, I saw him under pressure when he was uh, full of grace, and you, you are blessed to have Paul as your preacher here, and I, I can understand why the church is excited and growing, and I really uh, look forward to hearing future reports of what's going on here, but I'm just real proud of what you're doing, Paul. Way to go. In the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter, beginning with verse 13, we read these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. You know, the church of Jesus Christ is not very popular with some people today. There are politicians who don't like churches because they don't pay taxes. And there are people who have been hurt by the church who paint everybody in the church with the same brush and they conclude that everybody in the church is hypocritical. And then there is a segment of our society that looks at the church as being too judgmental. We're trying to impose our values on other people. Paul held up that book, When God Builds a Church. After we wrote that book, my son and I, uh, our publisher lined up some interviews on radio and television so that we could go in and ask, they would ask us softball questions and we would promote the book. Well, I walked into a local PBS station forgetting about their liberal bias and the hostess of the program began the show like this. Our special guest today is the Reverend Bob Russell, minister of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the nation. But some say the church is anti-Semitic. Some say it's homophobic. Some say it's anti-women. Some even say it's a cult. We'll be talking about those things when we come right back. <laughs> well, I didn't want to come right back. I wanted to go straight home. But for the next hour and a half, I answered hostile questions from her and from prearranged callers, uh, demanding to know uh, why the church was so hateful and judgmental. And I walked out of there saying, you know, there are a lot of people who don't have the same view of the church that I have. I think there are people who don't know anything about churches, who have a poor perception of them because they've been influenced by negative media stereotypes. You know what it is. You go to the movies, hardly ever somebody going to church is pictured in a favorable light. They're always a fun-hating legalist or a rank hypocrite. 
And it seems to me that newspapers sometimes sensationalize the failures of church leaders. You've read the headlines over the last couple of years. Youth minister admits he lied about teen's death. Pastor indicted for misappropriation of government aid. Priests arrested for molesting children. Preacher urges congregation to bring guns to church. Governor who campaigns for family values has an affair. You get the impression sometimes, don't you, that if the secularist could just prove enough church people phony, they would be vindicated in their unbelief. But you know what? It's not just the people on the outside of the church who disparage it. The church has received a lot of criticism from people within. If you've read anything in Christian literature in recent years, you know there are all kinds of attacks made on the church as being ineffective and irrelevant. One popular writer says he found more genuine fellowship in a commune than a church. And let's be honest, a portion of the criticism is valid. The church is made up of very imperfect people like you and me. But I have this concern. I've had contact with a lot of young preachers over the last three years in mentoring groups. And these young preachers are passionate about winning the lost. And they conclude that since the world thinks of the church as phony, they have to do everything they can to distance themselves from the church of the past. There was an article in the Cincinnati Inquirer several months ago uh, talking about a unique church, an edgy church in Cincinnati, where they entitled the, the, the article, The Beer Drinking Cussin' Preacher. The preacher is doing everything he can to show that he's not like the preachers of the past. And you'll hear these churches advertise, this is a church for people who don't like church. This is not your mother's church. Now, some of the changes that are taking place in the church across the country are really good, and the changes are necessary. But some are extreme and bizarre. I saw a cartoon in which a preacher was out front of the church building, and he was changing the name on the sign from First Baptist to Faith Boutique. But I have had it about up to here with all the criticism of the church, both inside and outside. And I want to talk with you this morning about what I love about the church. If you focus on the 5% that's wrong with your mate, you'll ruin your marriage. And the Bible tells us, think about the things that are good and lovely and pure. So let's think for a little while about what's right about the church, what we can love about the church. And hopefully when you leave today, you'll feel better about your church and you'll be, more importantly, better equipped to defend it. I love the church because I love its founder. Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock, on this truth that I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to use that to build my church. I have an affection for this old wall. If you looked at it, you'd say, well, that's pretty old, it's pretty outdated and meaningless. But I've kept this wall for 15 years because it once belonged to my dad, who died 15 years ago. And there are some things that I appreciate simply because they belonged to him. Now, if you love Jesus Christ, you're going to love the church. Because Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, folks, it's important that we understand Jesus did intend to build a church. In some hip Christian circles today, it's the end thing to trace the church and disassociate yourself from any established church. You'll hear people say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or, I'm, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I'm not a part of the institutional church. 
in their minds, the church is just some mystical, unidentifiable body of, of Christians, a universal body, anybody who belongs to Christ. But they don't think of the church in the Bible as being a place with buildings and budgets and cumbersome bureaucracy and boring sermons. And they're free of all that. In the book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, the author says, your church may be for you a little informal group that occasionally gets together at the local coffee shop and talks about Jesus. And you may find more genuine fellowship there than any kind of a ritualistic church service. But you know what? The New Testament makes it clear. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he intended it to be a visible body with structure and definition. There were elders in the New Testament church who were the overseers and teachers and preachers who instructed. The New Testament church was told not to forsake the assembling of themselves together on a weekly basis where they were fed and where they had the Lord's Supper. The church was visible enough that when one member suffered, they all suffered with it. When one member strayed, the others were to hold them accountable. It was visible enough that some in the world despised it and persecuted it. So the church is not just a few people casually gathering in a small group and meeting at Starbucks. The church was at the very heart and center of the purpose of God. In fact, the Bible knows nothing of an unchurched Christian. Acts 2.41 says, The Lord added to the church those that were being saved. As soon as you were saved, you were a part of Christ's church. Let me show you three symbols that the Bible uses to describe Jesus' inseparable relationship to the church. 1 Peter 2 compares the church to a building established on a firm foundation. It says, You are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, who is the chosen and precious cornerstone. You take a building off its foundation and it's going to collapse. The second analogy is Ephesians 5.23 that says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. You separate the head from the body and there's death. My favorite analogy is the groom who loves his bride. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now the groom normally loves the bride and the groom sees the bride as flawless for about two weeks. Now when Christ looks at the church, his bride... He sees us as flaws because we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and he overlooks our faults. John 3, 29 says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. I had a wedding several years ago where the groom really loved the bride and it was a good thing because she was one of those people who was so emotional that she lost it when she was coming down the aisle and she began to sob. I don't mean she shed a tear or two. She was bawling as she came down. And when she came near the front, it was not a pretty sight. Her, her face was all distorted and tears were cutting trenches of mascara down her cheeks and there were little black droplets that were dripping on her white wedding dress. And I looked over the green, groom and he was weeping too and I understood why. And... <laughs> I could not get this girl to settle down. And so I hurried through the service, and I got to the place where I said, you may kiss the bride. And the groom, instead of 
lifting her veil back over her face and kissing her. He pulled the veil out, came up and ducked underneath it, kissed her and put the veil back down. (laughs) But you know what? They went on to a great honeymoon and a meaningful life together because he loved the bride. And he saw beyond the tears and the contorted expression for who she was on the inside. And you better not trash his bride. Now, Christ sees us as without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. And it's not right to trash his bride, even though it's imperfect. And you know what the Bible says? One day, the groom is going to return from the bride, for the bride. First Thessalonians says, For the Lord shall come down from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you know what the Bible says the first thing the groom is going to do for the bride? First thing, as I understand it, he's going to wipe away all tears from her eyes. I think we are going to be so overwhelmed with gratitude and joy that we're going to be sobbing when the Lord returns. And the groom will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I love the church because it's the bride of Christ. I also love the church because I love the people in the church. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon. This has not been revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Simon Peter is going to play a key role in the church. What a flawed character he was. Wouldn't the first century comedians had a field day with Simon Peter? He gave him plenty of material. One minute he was walking on the water, the next minute he was up to his neck about to drown. One minute he's saying, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And the next minute he's challenging Jesus' statement of what's going to happen next. One minute he boasts, I will die for you, Jesus. And then a few hours later he's denying that he even knew the man. One day he's advocating the Gentiles should be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And a few weeks later, he's trying to prevent them from coming into the kingdom. Simon Peter's very imperfect. And yet Jesus loved him. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. The purpose of a key is to open the door. And you look at the early history of the church, Acts 2, it's Simon Peter who stands up in front of all the people in Jerusalem and says, welcomes them into the kingdom. And he tells them about the the coming Christ. And 3,000 people respond. Peter opens the door for the Jewish people. Acts 10, it's Simon Peter who preaches the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And he opens the door to the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. Jesus used Simon Peter, gave him the keys to the kingdom, even though he's so imperfect. You know what? Church people aren't perfect. But I've got to tell you what. Over 66 years of my life, church people are some of the best people in the world. Now, I'll admit, I have met some people in the world that I like better than some of the people in the church, but that's the exception, not the rule. The church is made up of very imperfect people, but they have a perfect model. And the fact that they've got this perfect model means that their compassion, their values, their goals uh, lift them up to a higher standard than others. Let's say you're traveling through an unfamiliar city late at night. And you realize you're about out of gas, and you're with your family, so you pull off the interstate, 1130 at night, and the service station is closed. So you go around the block to get back on the interstate, and you say, wow, this is a rugged part of town. I'd hate to be stopped here. And to your horror, you run out of gasoline. You pull the car over to the curb. Your heart is pounding. 
And you see walking towards you down the sidewalk three large men, and they're carrying something in their hands. Now let me ask you a question. Would you feel better if they were carrying a wine bottle or if they're carrying a Bible? If they just came out of a bar or they just came out of a Bible study, I dare say, no matter who you are, you would breathe the sigh of relief if you thought they were just coming from a Bible study. And you might even ask them for help. Now, there's no guarantee, but the odds are in your favor that they would help. Some of the best people in the world are Christians. Some of the best people in the world are in the church. They're the salt of the earth. I visited the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, the Billy Graham Training Center, uh, three months ago. And there was a picture on the wall behind the speakers of three men. The pictures were of Billy Graham in the center, Cliff Barrows on the right, and George Beverly Shea on the left. Isn't it unusual? These three guys started out in evangelism, and they were all in their 20s or early 30s, and they remained true to the Lord, and they remained good friends, and they're still alive to this day. Billy Graham is 92, Cliff Barrows is 91, I think, and George Beverly Shea on the left is 101 years old. He still sings, and he still drives a car. Watch out when he's coming at you, but he's still going. Now, when people say to me, ah, oh, the church is full of hypocrites, I say, what about Billy Graham? What about Cliff Barrows? What about George Beverly Shea? What about John Wooden? What about Mother Teresa? What about Tony Dungy? You can just go on and on. Listen, all kinds of people who are genuine to the core. There are elders in our church in Louisville who give 50% of their incomes away. We have a number of families in our church who have adopted children of other races, some of them disabled, even though they have several children of their own, simply because they want to reach out to the hurting. We've got a wonderful woman in our church who was injured, run over by a car when she was a little girl, and she's had over 200 major operations, and yet she still has a joyous spirit and gives praise to God. We've got a guy in our church who is an educator, his wife developed Alzheimer's in her late 50s, beautiful woman, and within three years she was just a shell of the person she once was. And she cannot function. But rather than put her in a home, he takes care of her every day. And he's just in his mid-60s, still in good health, and he bathes her and changes her and feeds her and every morning plays hymns to her and sings with her and reads scripture. Three times a week he takes her to the zoo because she loves animals. And she cannot reciprocate one ounce of love back to him. But he says, I made a promise, you know. And if I have to serve her for another 20 years, it does make up for all the love she's given to me. I'll tell you what. If you look around your church, you know everybody's imperfect, but some of the best people in the world are in the church. I also love the church because I love its positive influence. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When I first looked at this scripture, I prepared a whole point about the church's durability. I pictured the church huddled, and the Satan just attacking. The gates of hell can't stop the church. And Satan certainly has attacked the church. And the church has existed for 2,000 years. That's a wonderful thing. But then the more I looked at this, this imagery is not one of defense, but one of offense. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. Gates are never offensive weapons. They're defensive weapons. I understand the 
Indianapolis Colts play the San Francisco, is it still 49ers today? Uh, and that's at 1 o'clock, and the Colts are undefeated this year. Now, if I say the gates of Lucas Oil Stadium are not going to stop me today, even though I don't have a ticket, do you picture somebody bringing those turnstiles over and hitting me over the head of the turnstile? No. You, th you say, you know what? He's going to find some way to get over those gates and into that game. Now, when Jesus said, the gates of hell are not going to stop the church, he's picturing the church marching into the world and having an influence that intimidates Satan himself. And the early church was like that. They were on the offense. That early church didn't huddle in the upper room and rejoice over the fact that they were saved. They stood up boldly in the marketplace. Simon Peter, the first day, went out on the streets of Jerusalem. And he said, you men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man approved by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. But you, with wicked hands, have crucified and slain him. But God has raised him from the dead. And now God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And 3,000 people responded. But that so irritated, agitated the elite, that they said, we're erecting a, a gate. Don't you dare come out in public and speak about Jesus' resurrection again. And Peter and John said, we must obey God, not man. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And even though they were thrown in prison and persecuted, they kept marching into the gates of hell. And Acts 4 says there were 5,000 men in the church. And early historians tell us within a few months, there may have been as many as 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem. The gates of hell could not stop them. And ever since that time, when the church proclaimed the simple truth about Christ, it's had a powerful influence in the culture. The Roman culture had its gates. And they said to the early Christians, you're too narrow-minded. We believe we're a multicultural society in Rome. And we believe that there are many gods. Don't you go, come out here and say there's only one way to God. But the early Christians said, we've got to obey God, not man. And so Nero persecuted the Christians, put them on crosses and burned them, or threw them to the beast in the arena. But the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And by the year 350, Christianity was the state religion in Rome. The gates of Rome couldn't stop it. England had gates years later that protected slavery. Slavery was foundational to the economy. But William Wilberforce and others said, we're going to demolish those gates. And even though there were some Christians who owned slaves, it was the influence of godly people like Wilberforce and Wesley that demolished those gates. Today, the Chinese government has done just about everything it can to stop the church because it sees the church in China as a threat to communism. But did you know, I visited China two years ago, did you know there are over 100 million Christians in China today meeting in house churches? There are probably more Christians in, in China than any, any nation in the world. The gates of communism cannot stop it. Now, the United States of America was originally established as a country with no religious gates, no boundaries. This country was not intended to be a theocracy, but it was firmly founded on Judeo-Christian principles. President John Adams, the second president, said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, think about the influence that, that the church has had in America where there's no gates to stop it. The church started 106 of the first 108 colleges in this country, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and others. Or look around your community. Who started most of the hospitals in the Indianapolis area? Not the Atheist Society. 
the Baptists, the Methodists, the Catholics, the church. The church has funded most of the inner city missions that minister to the addicted and the homeless. The church has started most of the orphanages and homes for the elderly. The church establishes crisis pregnancy centers. The church ministers to those who are in prison. Who, who, who establishes the moral values that make business solid, ethical? It's the church. Or think about who taught me and some of you who are older to sing long before the civil rights movement. We were taught to sing in the church. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. The church. When Hurricane Katrina ripped the Gulf Coast, who was there first providing the most help? Who didn't scrape any money off the top? Who's there still? The church. But you know what? In spite of its positive influence in America, there are some politicians that are now suggesting this is not a Christian nation. There must be stricter boundaries on the church. President George Washington, first president, warned in his farewell address, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert those great pillars. But what's happening today in our country? Christians are warned, don't bring that Bible in here. Don't post those Ten Commandments here. Don't say Merry Christmas here. Don't pray here. Uh, don't bring that manger scene on this territory. And what we need today are courageous Christians who will say with Peter and John, we've got to obey God, not man. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And if we'll do that, if we'll be courageous, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Last month, I visited the Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, we're talking about Las Vegas, Sin City. Do you know there's a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, Central Church, that has 12,000 people every Sunday? They had a special baptism Sunday in April and they had a thousand baptisms one weekend. And they started another church that's had, uh, has 6,000 people. Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 20 says, Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Folks, this is such a powerful message. If we just take it, the gates of hell can't stop it because Jesus Christ has conquered the grave and he has conquered death and conquered sin and Satan. I, I want to. Uh, I want to close out by showing you a picture of the church I grew up in. This is a funny picture. This is a picture of First Christian Church, Meadville, Pennsylvania, 1941. Now, you've seen all these old-style color and black-and-white pictures, hundreds of them like this. And this is a pretty sorry-looking bunch of people, to be honest with you. This, there's not a college graduate in this entire this is just a class in this church of about 180 people. The only college graduate is the preacher. I'll show you him in a minute. And this is in Meadville, Pennsylvania. It's up near Erie, Pennsylvania. Third highest snowfall of any city in America. Uh, I showed this picture to a group of preachers, and a preacher came to me and he said, Bob, I grew up in Meadville. He said, I was in the eighth grade before I understood that the Lord's Prayer was not deliver us from Meadville. <laughs> uh, but before you, before you just say, these people have no influence, I want to tell you about some of these people and their kids. On the front row is Sue Anderson. She was a church organist. She and her husband, Homer, he's a mailman. They came to church faithfully every week. They had a daughter, Donna, who became involved in team expansion, a mission group sending missionaries all over the world. She had a daughter, uh, 
she ha had a daughter who's a missionary, and they have a son, Tim Cole, who's in charge of all the new church plants in the state of Virginia. On the far right circle here is Stanley Betray, he and his wife Mabel, little girl in the front row there. Shortly after this picture was taken, they decided to go to Bible college, and after Bible college, they spent 30 years of their life taking the gospel to Tokyo, Japan, planting seeds in Japan. In the middle are Edgar and Eva Pressey. Now, very unglamorous people, but they always came to church. They're holding, uh, Eva's holding a son, Arnold, Arnold Pressey. And Arnold Pressey was one of those kids, you thought he was going to tear up the church. He was just a holy terror. My dad taught Arnold when he was in fifth grade, and my dad would come home, uh, ride, home ride home, and he'd always say, Arnold Pressey is going to go to the penitentiary someday. You can guarantee it. Arnold Pressey is a preacher in North Carolina today. On the back row is Mr. Ward. Mr. Ward was kind of a stern elder. Everybody's kind of afraid of him, legalistic kind of guy. He had a daughter, Dorothy, who became a missionary to Alaska and a son-in-law who's a preacher. Three grandsons in ministry. On the front row are my mother and father. They're holding my older sister, Roseanne. Roseanne was single all of her life, but she grew up to be a great Bible teacher, one of six children that my mother and father had. Somebody pointed out to me, if you look closely, my mother and dad are the only ones in the entire picture smiling. That's because they haven't had me yet. <laughs> I wish you could have known my dad. My father was the 17th of 18 children. And his father was an alcoholic. His mother died when he was three years old. He got tossed from sister to sister, was not a Christian, met my mother. She led him to the Lord, and he never looked back. He loved the church, became a leader in the church, even though he worked in a factory all his life and scraped to get by raising six kids. But he tithed his income and gave generously to the church. When I was in the seventh grade, my parents helped start a new church in the little town that we lived in 15 miles away, and we started with 35 people. And my father loved this church. First one there, last one to leave. And w when the church was about five or six years old, we had a preacher who didn't have a high moral standard, and he skipped town, leaving a lot of unpaid bills. And my dad went to the bank because he didn't want the church to have a bad reputation in the community. He went to the bank, and he borrowed $2,500 on his own signature, paid off all the preacher's bills, then took a second job working in a sawmill to pay it back. When you've got a dad like that, you're, you're going in the ministry whether you want to or not. <laughs> so I've got a brother who's a preacher. I've got two sisters who are married to preachers. I've got one sister who's a black sheep. She married an elder. But you've all got people that you're ashamed of in your family. <laughs> They've also got five grandsons who are preachers. On the back row is D.P. Schaefer, the preacher. D.P. Schaefer's son, Raymond Schaefer, became the two-term governor of the state of Pennsylvania, served on President Nixon's cabinet for a while. I'll show people this church picture, and they'll say, what is a great church? Well, it's kind of an average church, kind of stagnant. In fact, shortly after this picture was taken, they asked the preacher, D.P. Schaefer, to resign because not, not much was happening. And he went to his grave thinking, church really hadn't accomplished much. But look at what happened 60 years later. Now, my, here's my point to you, Grace Church. When somebody looks at a picture of this church 60 years from now, 
And they say, there's my grandfather. There's my great-grandmother. Can you imagine the kind of influence that this church is going to have generations later? How many people do you think are going to be saved because of the money you're putting in the offering, because of your service to this church? How many marriages are going to be kept together? How many kids kept off drugs? How many ministers? How many missionaries? How, how's the gospel going to spread? I just want to challenge you. You love the church because it influences the culture much more than the government and the university and even the Indianapolis cult. What you're doing here is more important. So I want to challenge you. Don't grow weary in doing good because in due season, you reap a harvest if you don't give up. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this church. It's young, and like every church, we go through trials and joys, and I thank you for this wonderful period they're in right now. I just pray you'd help all these people to love the church, to sacrifice for it as Christ sacrificed for it, knowing that the seeds that are planted will reap a harvest in years to come. Would you show your favor on the leaders and the members of this church that would have a great impact on this community and the world for you. We pray in Christ's name.